We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Dimitri Buyas. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing tourism as an economic driver and hopes that the island's tourism sector can become a one trillion NT dollar industry. A Chinese company getting ticked off after a Taiwan YouTuber Potter King dared to put a post on the interweb titled President when referring to Tsai Ing-wen. Far Eastern Air Transport is now petitioning the government to... Well, resume flights after last week it said it wasn't going to fly anymore. A finally finalised Taipei Twin Towers project and a Japanese e-commerce company has now renamed the Monkeys baseball team to reflect its investment in the CPBL team. But we'll begin with the first of three televised presidential policy presentations which aired on Wednesday of this week on CTS. And President Tsai Ing-wen, Han Guo-yu and James Sung all agreed to disagree on cross-strait policy policies, while Tsai and Han bashed each other's policies and there were hints at questionable actions made by the other towards the other. Each candidate was given 30 minutes in which to state their policy platform, with that 30 minutes being broken into three segments of 10 minutes each. Now speaking during the presentation, Han reiterated the KMT's position that adherence to the 1992 consensus must be the basis for any interaction between Taiwan and China. Replying to Han's comment, Tsai described that consensus as a mere illusion and she went on to say that her administration will never sacrifice Taiwan's sovereignty in exchange for short-term economic benefits. Tsai also criticised Han for moving too close to the Chinese government citing his visits to China's liaison office in Hong Kong in March in his capacity as Kaohsiung mayor. Han though dismissed that statement saying that he visited the liaison office with the primary goal of seeking markets for Kaohsiung's agricultural products and to maintain good relations. Now meanwhile James Sung said that cross-strait issues should not be used as electioneering tools and he went on to say that Taiwanese should have confidence in their country's democratic system because no one can sell out Taiwan in blatant disregard of public opinion and he went on to say that if elected he will rely on his four decades of expertise and experience in cross-strait affairs and national security to help make Taiwan a better place. Now when they weren't talking about cross-strait issues they were basically bashing each other with Tsai Ing-wen saying that Han does not have the qualities to he- serve as head of state as according to Tsai Ing-wen the rhetoric coming from Han's campaign team is discriminatory emotional, divisive and at times misleading. Now Tsai also said that well Han has made the claim that many people around her campaign are corrupt but she went on to say well she bashed him basically for failing to explain why two of his wife's close friends were appointed to head Kaohsiung's culture and tourism bureaus. Now Han shot back saying that if elected he will revive the now disbanded Special Investigation Division to probe Tsai Ing-wen's forward-looking infrastructure development program and other major initiatives launched by the Tsai administration. Now, James Sung accused both the DPP and the KMT of tearing Taiwan apart and he said the biggest problem facing Taiwan is the high wall between the two camps and he went on to say that unlike those two parties, he's committed to building Taiwan. Now, there'll be two other presidential policy presentations and a presidential debate 
before the election, which we'll no doubt be talking about in the coming weeks. So, Brian, who do you think won? It wasn't a, obviously a debate, it was a presentation. Obviously, <laughs> they bashed each other and James Sung sat to the side and made other comments. What did you take away from the presentation this week? Um, that's right. It's not actually a debate, although I feel like the, the policy presentations that we have before elections are effectively debates, and so it's a little puzzling there sometimes. Um, but I think, as expected, Tsai would defend her accomplishments, uh, claim that she will defend Taiwan's sovereignty as to justify another four years in office, whereas Han will precisely attack her on the same issues, and I think that is what we saw. Um, Han, for example, uh, claimed that he was defending the sovereignty of the ROC, attempted to label Tsai as being wishy-washy, not saying whether she was committed to the ROC or some notion of Taiwanese independence, and memorably shouted, long live the ROC three times, and demanded that Tsai either do the same in declaring support for Taiwanese independence or affirming the ROC. And then he accuses Tsai of corruption um, in, in accusing the forward-looking infrastructure plan of being a vehicle for corruption and graft, and claiming that Tsai has illicit ties, and that, that while he himself has been accused of having many properties, Tsai herself has properties which are quite lucrative. And I think, I wonder if this is actually taking something out of an authoritarian playbook, um, saying that once you're in office, you will investigate your predecessor for corruption and perhaps take legal measures against them. And I think that's, that's one of those things. He's really banking on this, actually. And Dimitri? What I found a bit weird that, again, she, she was making the claim that he doesn't deserve to run in the election, which is, I think, a bit odd. Uh, it's up to the voters to decide in the end who is going to become the president of Taiwan. So we were expecting discussions about policies, and we were expecting the president to maybe to expand and share more about her accomplishment and, and also things that actually uh, didn't work. But... Well, the whole picture was that, again, they were just, for sure, again, they were blame, just blaming each other and saying today that, well, that his rhetoric is discriminatory, emotional, and divisive. Well, maybe, but it's just the way elections are run in Taiwan. So that that's a big concern. Uh, for uh, Han Gui, I would say that, well, he had a point. He's the challenger in the election, so he had a point to explain that, well, up to 4,000 factories are were shut down last year. And then he also had a point when he explained that uh, the actual income, the money we make in Taiwan today is actually pretty much less than what we made 20 years ago. So in terms of policy, uh, it was a bit disappointing. And well, we hope that the next debate, if uh, I hope there will be another uh, one or maybe two, we hope that uh, they will just raise the bar, raise the bar next time. And of course, Brian, this wasn't actually a debate, but it turned into a debate. That's right. Um, so I think it was a de facto debate. That's, that's what I'm kind of saying. Or debates took place at the presidential policy presentation. That's what I've also been saying. Um, but I actually think that it is in size incentive not to debate, because Han is lagging so behind in the polls uh, by 20 or 30 points that she actually probably would not say anything in the next uh, few debates that is particularly substantive. Uh, she wants to avoid offering any new talking points on which she could be attacked while maintaining her lead over Han. And so I think she will actually stick by primarily to attacks on Han, uh, rather than offering any new policy herself in the coming debates, unless the KMT begins to close the gap and then she actually has to push harder on this. Um, with regards to Han, I think that, uh, yeah, it's the question. He, he raises the, that salaries have not increased, but he also accuses Tsai of using false facts. And this is, I think, again, because he is really banking on the fact that salaries have not increased and the average Chinese voter does not feel the economy has grown when it has, in fact, grown under Tsai. And so he's trying to, trying to create a distinction between perceptions of economic reality 
reality and what is economic reality while accusing his opponent of using fake facts and internet uh, arm cyber armies against him and so forth. And I think that he will continue to stick to this tactic, actually, just of trying to undermine objectivity in his debates because that is to his advantage. And Dimitri, what about James Sung? Well, I think James Sung, again, uh, he's been in almost all elections, uh, presidential <laughs> elections so far. So he, he's the most experienced politician for, I think, for these kind of debates. So what he tried to do is to stand in between and show that, well, they are actually making both, they are irrelevant. So he tried to uh, show himself as being the most relevant uh, candidate in the election. Well, I, I hope he succeeded, but, well, we hope also that maybe the main containers in the election that both from the DPP and the KMT just can raise the bar higher than that. Right. Higher than and Brian, what about your, 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 your best line from the policy presentation? I thought Hang Guoyu's I talk about the ocean while you talk about the bathwater was mildly amusing. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Han does have many, ter- many memorable turns of phrase. I did enjoy, again, just that he shouted, long live the ROC three times, which sort of came out of nowhere and has been memed endlessly on the internet because it is, it is quite funny. Um, tai was not so emotive. Uh, I think actually, actually, that's actually interesting about this debate that Han had a much stronger performance than his uh, debate performances in the Kaohsiung mayoral run. And so I think he's not going to lose voters his, on the basis of this debate. Uh, tai was not as, she was aggressive against him, but she's not actually uh, as sometimes emotive or vocal as Han is. And Dimitri, if you had to take one thing away from the presentation. Well, I would say that, yes, he improved uh, for her, in terms of for Han Goyu, I think his performance, he improved his performance, but um, well, that's the thing with uh, with Han. I think the more he prepares, somehow the more he is, uh, he can say things that are totally unexpected. Uh, we shouldn't focus too much about the way he runs his election. Uh, I, we hope that maybe he can, let's say, he can clearly explain uh, his policies in the future without making bold statements. But he's the, he was the, the least experienced uh, uh, speaker in the in, in the debate. All right, moving away from the election and talking about something completely different, that being tourism. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday of this week announced that the government is seeking to turn Taiwan into one of Asia's top travel destinations over the coming decade. Now, according to Tsai, she believes the plan will help make the island's tourism sector become a one trillion NT dollar industry by 2030. And Tsai says as the Tourism Bureau expands and upgrades its operations, she's confident that tourism can become one of the main drivers of Taiwan's economy and a key force in promoting international diplomacy. Now, although there has been a marked decline in Chinese tourist numbers, officials say there has been an increase in overall tourist numbers. Now, numbers banded around this week said that the number of tourists arriving this year hit a new high of 11.11 million, marking the fifth consecutive year that visitor numbers did surpass 11 million. Now, the statements come as the Tourism Bureau is apparently preparing to release a white paper detailing the government's plans to boost the island's travel industry. So, Brian, of course, this 11.11 million, 11th million people came. That was questioned this week, of course, and the Premier had to come out and say, it's true. 
That's right. And I think, the, again, the KMT will really try to accuse the Tsai administration of not actually boosting tourist numbers, that these are false statistics, because of the claim that Taiwan is so dependent on Chinese tourism that with the decline in Chinese tourists coming to Taiwan, this means a decline in the overall tourism uh, to Taiwan. And so this is the perception I think the KMT is trying to increase. Um, that being said, I think actually this goal is unrealistic. Um, on the basis of 11 million or 10 million uh, tourists per year, Taiwan's economy, uh, the amount of revenue coming for tourism is around 300 billion. So tripling this uh, would be quite difficult in, in uh, 10 years. That would actually mean either having three times more tourists come to Taiwan or having tourists spend three times more money. Uh, I'm not sure which one is easier said or than done. I think that would probably be a combination of the two. But even then, this kind of rapid increase in tourism, I mean, 30 million people, let's say, coming to Taiwan, that's over the size of the Taiwanese population. That would actually severely disrupt infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, Dimitri, I mean, if that many people came, you couldn't get a ticket on the high-speed rail if you wanted one. Exactly. But, you know, we should be very careful when we say things like false statistics. We're all talking about official data provided openly to all media outlets. We're all talking about the same numbers. So we do understand the potential of Taiwan tourism, but in terms of percentage increase over the last five years, we had a barely few, just less than 10% increase over five years. That's, I mean, that's not an increase. 10 million is what we had five years ago. Now we have 11 million and we shouldn't be, well, that, you know, we shouldn't be that happy about it. Well, Taiwan is, you should, we should also know that Taiwan is actually competing with uh, other heavyweights in the region in terms who are also looking to attract tourists to their, uh, to their countries to support the economy. Next year, for example, the Tokyo Olympics are poised to to drain visitors from all across the region. So there is little hope that we will attract the remaining travelers in Taiwan. So, well, the policy, the target, 2030, that's totally unrealistic. Unreal, and so we should be, well, this is an election year, so we should, we, we, we maybe we'll get more real, better numbers after the election. So, of course, Brian, banding around this, we want to make it a $1 trillion industry and it's going to become a super-duper travel destination of Asia. Do you think that, well, the government talks about this talk, but, I mean, what are people meant to do when they come here? Surely they need to do more <laughs> things when they come here. I think that's a question, actually. That's a, I mean, it's a good point that Taiwan doesn't have many international events that can attract international attention, such as sporting events, sometimes because of Chinese pressure. And so then, what does Taiwan need to leverage on compared to other regional competitors? Uh, in which there are many, just China, of course, uh, Japan, South Korea, Southeast Asian countries, Vietnam, etc., Philippines. And so you have to have, actually, some kind of brand recognition of what Taiwan is in order to attract people. And actually, I think it's kind of funny that, depending depending on whichever administration comes into power, this always differs as to what that is. If it's a pan-green administration, it's what distinguishes Taiwan from China. When it is a pan-blue administration, it is often Taiwan as China or preserving some quintessential essence of China, which China doesn't have. And so this is a question that actually ties back to identity. And how do you frame Taiwan if you really want to lure people from the international world to come here? And then we see incidents such as the U-bike banning uh, of, of foreigners and expats and and then um, and so forth. These actually inter inter uh, illustrate how Taiwan is not prepared to attract international attention um, and just you know, all this talk of making an English an official language how will that work will that actually be carried in a way that can lure people over I don't know well you know whether tourists from India or Southeast Asia or South Korea come to Taiwan it has nothing to do with China so we shouldn't use you know, always the Chinese argument to blame for the results we have today uh, in terms of spending uh, backpackers from across Asia uh, we've, we've seen 
seen an increase of tourists from South Southeast Asia, but they are not spending as much money as you know visitors from uh, Japan, South Korea, or even China. So, well, we we're looking forward an increase in the number of visitors, but they also need to spend more and to spend more to support the economy. So that's not going to happen overnight. So, well, let's stop. we shouldn't blame China for everything. Well, we can blame China for a lot of things, but And what do you think the government could do to develop the tourism industry? What could they could they could there be new things people could do here, Dimitri? Well, the the, the, the government is actually doing a lot. They have new policies. Uh, they are working hard, I think, to develop the tourism in the mountain mountainous area. So that it's true that most when when tourists come to Taiwan, they all tend to go to the same place. So uh, I don't know if you remember the National Pass Museum a few years ago. It was really packed with with visitors, and it, it wasn't a pleasant experience to visit the National Pass Museum. So it's right to try new ways to send tourists to new destinations all across Taiwan. So there is a lot of potential in the mountainous areas, and that's why the government is actually launching a new website next month with new destination trails and proper information for travelers to go to places that well, usually most people don't know. So, well, yes, the government is doing a lot and is trying new things, which is a good thing. And moving on from tourism things to internet things. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen this week described the decision by a Chinese company to boycott Taiwanese YouTube personality Potter King over a viral video that featured her as being regrettable. Now, according to Tsai, Taiwan is a free society in which it is normal and acceptable to refer to the country's leader as president and even to flirt with the head of state. Now, that statement came after Potter King released a tongue-in-cheek video entitled The First Person in the World to Flirt with the President. Now, the video, which garnered some three million views in less than two days, shows Tsai and Potter King in conversation during a visit she paid to the production studio in Kaohsiung. Now, Potter King's production team says its Chinese promoter, Pappy Tube, has now withdrawn from a cooperation agreement after Potter King, well, he refused to take the video down as it had the word president in and the Chinese company had demanded that the word president be taken out. Now, his production company has said, well, they have lost millions of renmin B, but they don't care because they stand for freedom of speech and democracy. So a YouTuber standing up to China, Brian, unlike a pop star that says things and then regrets it. <laughs> and that's one of those things, actually. I think that Thai's entertainers working in the Chinese market always then face the pressure now to uh, enforce China's political views and say that you view Taiwan as part of China. Um, Tsai has adopted a strategy this time in this set of elections of making many public appearances with YouTubers and internet stars and so forth. Um, this is a way to uh, to actually outreach the young people to use the internet uh, and to show that you're more more you're up to date with what is actually um, what young what, what what society is really into nowadays. And so this is one that strategy. But then a lot of these YouTubers that will appear in a video with Tsai, this actually damages their ability to operate in the Chinese market. And so I think actually before any set of elections now, you're always going to see this kind of issue. In the past, we've seen uh, for example, Zozu of Twice, um, the South Korean pop group, who is Taiwanese, uh, being forced to apologize because of a perception in China that she was supportive of Taiwanese independence for waving an ROC flag. And we've had pressure on, for example, actors such as Leon Dai, um, or his removal from a Chinese movie, uh, No Other Love, because of the fact that he is seen as pro-independence. And so this is this one of those things that will become an issue, I think, going forward before every presidential election, uh, how that interfaces with uh, entertainment and so forth. 
Well, I think the, the YouTuber knew beforehand of the consequences of his decision, and it is just a little bit too late to complain about it. This is a serious business, and influencers sell their services for a hefty price, with some of them reaching six-digit numbers. So if you're doing business in China, you shouldn't pretend that you didn't know about the red light. A Chinese company selling whatever products shouldn't get involved in cross-trade policies. And the same is true in Taiwan. Let's put it the way around. I'm a famous YouTuber from Taiwan, and I sell tea, and I have this fancy contract with uh, a tea company. Now, I go to do a YouTube, a YouTube uh, video with Xi Jinping. I go to his home, and I do just do exactly the same thing. Now, even though Taiwan understands the value of the freedom of speech and the value of business, mm. I don't think that they will accept me to do such business. And I might lose my contract in Taiwan, even if Taiwan is a free society. Now, in terms of business, I think the influencer just raised the bar higher. Now, he's going to make more, more business in Taiwan because of this, because he reached, his reach increased by 11 million. So it's all benefits for him. It's all benefits for the presidential candidate. So, well, it's all benefits for everyone. Of course, it's not all benefits, Brian, because, of course, these politicians, like you said, they go out, they want the young vote, and they end up sometimes looking rather stupid. I had UTN on television in front of me yesterday, <laughs> rapping. Um, yeah, actually, this video is, is quite funny. Uh, if you watch this video, I think uh, Tai actually does not know really who she's talking to and what this guy normally does, which is uh, his main thing is, is hitting on women in, in a very cringeworthy manner, and this gets laughs. And so actually, the, the president, I mean, this is uh, extremely cringeworthy, uh, seeing someone flirt awkwardly th with the president. Um, but actually, yeah, it, it's a cost-benefit decision as to whether you want to potentially not have access to the Chinese market. And there's almost no way that Potter King was not aware of this beforehand. Um, but that being said, I think it's actually just a form of victim blaming to claim that the Chinese government is justified to do this just because you're acting in the Chinese market um, on the free market in theory. You're not supposed to come under censorship for your uh, for who you appear with or what political views you express unless you're operating in an authoritarian country. Uh, and so that, that is what happens. And so it is, it is a cost-benefit analysis. He definitely did make a rational decision that this would be in his interest not to do this. But I also think it's a form of victim blaming um, to actually say that then it's his fault. And Dimitri, politicians going on the YouTube and, well, put it politely, possibly making arses of themselves. <laughs> well, I mean, the YouTube thing is the, it's a, it's the easy interview. If you want to be, if you're confronted by maybe uh, editor, editorialist professional reporters, they might ask you the tough questions you actually don't want to answer. If you go for the YouTuber, you invite him to your place, you do some cooking, you do some chit-chatting. That's the easy, easy interview. But it's time. It's the marketing thing, and it's part of the this uh, political campaign. President uh, Taiwan um, did this this year, but other politicians around the world actually just play the same trick. They're trying to get to increase their reach through the help of their these influencers. So it's just marketing. I actually think that Tsai was not aware of what actually this YouTuber was doing. Um, she actually, in the, vi in the video, she keeps almost talking about, oh, it's local Kaohsiung industry, you know, like, you're helping the economy, oh, are you all from Kaohsiung? I actually think that she didn't know what she was walking into. <laughs> well, the, the person in charge of marketing made a mistake, obviously. She should have been aware of what the guy's doing before she agreed to do this interview. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials.
welcome back to Taiwan this week. And now the sorry story of Far Eastern Air Transport continued this week after it suddenly ceased operations last week. And the carrier is apparently now petitioning the government for permission to resume flights. Now, Transport Minister Lin Jialong says that his office will respect any decisions the Civil Aeronautics Administration makes regarding that request. Now, and according to the Transport Minister, the Civil Aeronautics Administration, like I said, will make a final decision, but it could either revoke the airline's operating license or require it to make improvements before it's allowed to restart operations. So, Dimitri, I mean, should Far Eastern Air Transport be allowed to resume operations or should the world wish Far Eastern Air Transport adieu, finally gone bye-bye? Well, I think they will make another comeback because this is not the first time. But what is sad about this airline is actually the story. This, what happened to them is ex- exactly explains the situation of the, the economic situation in Taiwan. We hope for more visitors to Taiwan. We hope that people from all across Asia will come to Taiwan. Uh, Far Eastern Airlines is a local airline, so they fly from Taipei to from Taipei to Kaohsiung, Taichung, local destinations mostly, and short destinations across Asia. So, well, they're just losing customers, and that's why they can't sustain their business. So it's nice to have, you know, statements about what we will do over the next 10 years and how we will reach that one trillion uh, economy in Taiwan for the tourism sector. But on the short term, you have companies like Far Eastern Airlines, and it's not the only one. The hotel, the hotel industry is really suffering right now, and they only survive on subsidies provided by the government. So, well, that's the whole picture. And the story of the Far Eastern uh, Airline ex- explains and shows what is the real situation in Taiwan. Um, I'm not actually that sure that's the case because it is a domestic airline, and so obviously it is transferring people around Taiwan. But it's not the case that only Chinese people are actually moving around Taiwan, and there's other forms of transportation. Uh, for example, the decline of Far Eastern as a uh, carrier uh, being closed between 2007 and 2010, then reopening, um, is actually, I think it's more linked to the development of the high-speed rail that you no longer needed to take an airplane to get around parts of Taiwan. It is much easier to just take a high-speed rail, and you don't have to go through checking and book a ticket ahead of time. It's much easier and more convenient. I think that's a product of, of domestic factors, not actually uh, because of a decline in Chinese tourist numbers or anything like that. Um, I think it's also interesting that, uh, however, that uh, there's, there's also some discussion within the industry whether this is actually a product of a split within the family that runs Far Eastern Airlines. And this would be similar to the split that led to um, the formation of Starlux, for example, out of uh, the family that runs EVA. And so this is maybe pointing to some of the behind-the-scenes contestation in, uh, I guess, airline business family politics. Um, but then, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things, actually. Just smaller carriers have difficulty operating compared to larger ones. And, and it seems that Far Eastern has kind of run out of money again. But Brian, do you think it should be allowed to continue? Should, should the CAA just take its license away and say, look, this is twice you've done this, enough already? <laughs> I think it's one of those things, actually. Um, the airline industry in Taiwan historically enjoys close ties to the state. And so that's the way that it operates. Um, and then you have, I think, oftentimes airlines just suddenly shutting down uh, with very short notice and then kind of eventually being allowed to run again with very little punishment from the state. And I think that um, probably this will happen again. I think that as long as it just makes enough assurances that it will keep operating, um, it will be allowed to do that. But I think, I think it's definitely an issue. I mean, just having all these sudden layoffs that workers had no notice, uh, that passengers were inconvenienced, um, that this, this would occur again just so suddenly without any advance notice. That's an issue. Uh, it's irresponsible on the part of the company. Well, 
um, the issue now is that the routes they're operating and the license they have are is actually extremely valuable. So it's it's very likely that other airlines are going to try to get those licenses and reach and get those new routes and maybe combine these routes with the routes they already operate. So, well, time is running out, and they need to find a short-term solution. Or Because when once you lose your license and then you lose the right to use these specific routes, well, this will be definitely the end of the story for Far Eastern Airlines. Right, and talking about the end of an airline, well, we'll go move on to the beginning of a building. That being that Taipei is set to get two new glitzy high-rises within the next seven years after Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jir this week signed a contract with Kent Shu, who heads a local consortium which was awarded priority status to develop the rather controversial Twin Towers project, which is located or will be located near the Taipei main station. Now, Kerr says the development of the project is expected to provide tremendous business opportunities because he says it's located close to the major transport hub, that being the Taipei main station, that Kerr says serves more than half a million commuters on any given day. Now, the Twin Towers project is estimated to cost some 60.6 billion NT, and the Taipei mayor says the city government will earn 1.8 billion NT in rental revenue and 1.46 billion NT in property tax each year when it's completed. Now, the actual Kent Shu dude from the consortium that's going to build it has also said that he expects the project to provide provide 16,000 jobs and generate more than 100 billion NT in economic value. Now, the Taipei City's Department of Rapid Transit Systems says construction of the two high-rise skyscrapers is expected to begin in 2021 and be completed in 2026 before officially opening in 2027. Now, the city government, of course, announced in October that the Taiwanese conglomerate would take over the contract from the previous winner, which was a consortium led by Hong Kong-based Nanhai Development and Malaysian property developer Malton Burr. Had. Now, the Investment Commission here revoked the Hong Kong-based conglomerate's priority status for the contract in June, citing national security concerns after it found that Nanhai apparently, well, it had Chinese funding. So, Brian, a big new glitzy building in downtown Taipei that was once mired with controversy, which we talked about at the time, it's now got a local consortium going to build it, and it's going to go up, and it's going to bring everyone loads of money. <laughs> That's a question to me, actually, because I think mayoral administrations oftentimes like these white elephants projects to have a lot of uh, the appearances that you're building, creating a lot of jobs, stimulating the economy and so forth. But then you maybe you have end up having a building that just is very slow in construction or ends up never really being used once it's built. And so that's, I think that's the issue here. This could potentially become something like the Taipei Dome for Koenja, his version of it, in trying to create a new structure that just gets mired in controversy and doesn't eventually get built. Um, I think that actually building a structure in this area it would be a challenge. I don't know if there's actually a need for another mall in that area when, for example, within the Taipei main station, there are like three malls already, sort of. And that area is already pretty well developed. Um, I mean, and it's also an issue now that I think that there's, it, even Ko discusses this, uh, there's too many shopping areas in Taipei and it's not very clear how they're supposed to distinguish themselves from each other. Uh, for example, between Western Taipei, Ximending, uh, the Eastern District, Dongxu, or just the area around Taipei 101 and Xingyi, Da, and that area. Um, and so then, then you have this development here by Taipei main station, like what are you going to do with that? What are specificities? Or will it just be a building that is just another building in that area that people don't maybe use? Well, uh, I think there is a controversy here because um, the contract that was, uh, the previous contract, uh, the legal proceedings are still underway uh, regarding the previous contract. So uh, the mayor said he uh, consulted with legal experts already 
and he said there is no problem with the project process now. But what if in a year from now, in two years from now, the situation changed? That could cost a lot of money to, 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 to Taipei City. Now, we do understand that the mayor wants to uh, push forward with this, uh, with this project for two reasons. First, uh, when he came to, into office four years ago, there was this old the controversy about the, uh, the Taipei Dome. So when he came to, since he came to office, most of these major development projects around Taipei, we haven't seen a, a lot of new projects. So that would be I, maybe, maybe the, the biggest project or the first one. Uh, in Taipei since he took office. So uh, there are lots of expectations, but because of this controversy about the contract, well, that could turn to be uh, a, a major issue uh, in about four years from now. And what about, Dimitri, maybe the contract's no problem, but like Brian raised the issue, I mean, does Taiwan, or Taipei rather, need another shopping mall full of the same shops as all the other ones, more hotels in that area, and of course more expensive apartments in an area which, you know, it's already got rather a lot of expensive apartments? Well, Taipei City Department of Land Administration actually released a survey, uh, I think yesterday, about the real estate rankings in Taipei and about the most valued properties around the city. So Taipei, Taipei 101, uh, Taipei 101 has remained the top spot for real estate rankings in Taiwan's capital. But we should know that uh, less than 10 years ago, the, uh, the, the area just around the Taipei station was actually the most valuable uh, real estate area in Taipei. So, well, maybe the mayor also wants to balance the development across the city. All the uh, assets and resources, everything goes to the Xin district now. So maybe it's also a way to balance the development of the city and to maybe increase the value of land and properties in that area. That could be a potential explanation. I think that's right. Um, Koenja is particularly focused on that area, developing, for example, around Bayman. Uh, that was one of the things that he did once immediately he took office. He demolished yeah. a highway ramp that was blocking the view, and he has focused a lot of energy on developing that area as kind of a signature of, of things that have changed, how he has left a mark on Taipei. Um, but there is increasing discussion of the fact that Western Taipei, which was once prosperous 10 years ago, uh, the Ximending area, uh, in that area, it, development has shifted eastward. Um, I mean, there's always shifts in development in the city, but I think this is quite dramatic. You see quite a lot of empty storefronts. Um, but even part Parts of, of the eastern district are looking a little empty, and, and again, development has sifted towards that and Singi and, and that area. That is the area in which there's a lot of commercial development. So I think, yeah, I think that's right. Co is trying to rebalance in that way, and he sees, a, and this is this is why he focuses on this project. Right. Well, it's not. A, it's not going to be a short. It's not for the short term anyway. It's mm-hmm. just about in. A, it will be finished in about ten, seven to ten years from now. So well, maybe the mayor also is. He's planning for I mean, his future plans in four years from now. Maybe he's going to use that project to show that, well, his policies, he brought new development in the city. So maybe that's one of the reasons why he's pushing forward with the project right now. Right. And before we go, the founder, chairman and CEO of Japanese e-commerce giant Rakuten was in Taipei this week to unveil the name and New Jersey of the company's recently acquired Lamigo Monkeys baseball team. Now, Hiroshi Mikitani, I think that's how you say his name, announced that the team will be renamed the Rakuten Monkeys and will play in a red, white and gold jersey, which is very much like the one worn by the Rakuten Golden Eagles, which is a Japanese pro 
baseball team also owned by the same company. Now, Rakuten bought the Taoyuan-based Chinese professional baseball team from Lanyu International, making it the first foreign company to own a CPBL team since the league's founding in 1990. Now, Mikitani said that he was thrilled to unveil the new team's name and is ready to bring his group's experience of professional baseball in Japan to Taiwan to contribute to its growth and ongoing success. Now, the Rakuten Monkeys are retaining the team's former general manager, Justin Leo, who said that he hopes to introduce Japanese professional sports management and related technology to the team and Taiwan as a whole. So, Brian, do you think this Rakuten team can bring anything to the local baseball scene? I think it's branding. I think it's advertising for Rakuten, uh, Rakuten. Um, because Rakuten also has a pattern of buying up uh, sports teams across the world as, as advertising. Of FC Barcelona, for example, is owned by Rakuten. Um, and I think that it's actually, I thought it was very funny that after all this fanfare, what are you going to rename the team, Lamigo Monkeys? It's just Rakuten Monkeys, because we have this naming pattern in Taiwan in which it's the name of the company that owns the team and the name of the team. Um, and I think, I think it's a way of leveraging on the Taiwanese market because of the fact that baseball became popular in Taiwan during the Japanese colonial period. You see this in recent movies in the past years, such as Kano. And so having a Japanese company own a Taiwanese baseball team, that is a way to actually stimulate the, the role of this company in Taiwan. I mean, some, sometimes apps, by Rakuten, the company I've been popular in Taiwan in the past, is an e-commerce giant. I don't know if it's really trying to make inroads in the Taiwanese market, um, but it is, it is interesting that way. Well, I think that's going to raise the... Um, that will increase the exposure of Taiwan baseball uh, you know, among countries where baseball is actually very popular. It will also... The team, and because of their experience, they will bring... Uh, that will stimulate the, the, base, the baseball business. I mean, the baseball, uh, the baseball scene in Taiwan. Uh, we hope that they will bring uh, exp- more experienced players, more exp- exp- experienced coach, and that could raise the uh, the, the the value of those uh, very uh, talented players we have in Taiwan. So we've seen many players actually uh, from Taiwan later on moving to the United States. So for those players from the new Rakuten Monkeys uh, team. Well, for them, that's going to be a huge opportunity for them to develop their career in the future. And that's right. And there's actually a history of Taiwanese baseball players also going to Japan. The legendary Japanese baseball player Sadamoto Oh is actually Taiwanese. And in Japan, it's actually kind of forgotten that he was actually Taiwanese. Um, and so this actually, this is a potential for, I think, exchanges uh, with Japan, um, with uh, moving to different leagues, with Taiwanese players getting more exposure on the international world. I think that's totally right. But Dimitri, do you think other companies, other foreign companies, could come in and buy baseball teams here? They could potentially, but I don't know on the short term. On the short, but that's well, it's a it's a complex complex issue. But uh, I, we can move. I mean, we can expect the local companies owned by local businesses to invest more and just to race for the challenge for the for the competition this year. Uh, they know that the, the Rakuten Monkeys team is going to raise the bar, so they're just going to invest more, and that, that's going to be all beneficial for, 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 for Taiwan baseball. I can, I can also see that being a point of identity contestation. Uh, going back to what I said about the kind of Japanese colonial legacy and, and baseball, let's say a, a Chinese company tries to buy up a Taiwanese baseball team, then baseball, insofar as it's a marker of a Taiwanese identity or whatever, pride, then that becomes controversial. Um, I think also there would be uh, a lot of questions raised. For example, if Western companies buy up Taiwanese baseball teams, people might celebrate this as indicating something about closer ties between Taiwan and, let's say, America or Europe or what have you, uh, the Western world. Um, that, would be, that would also be quite interesting as a development. 
Couldn't they just look at it like it's the way sports goes globally? Uh, I think so too. Yeah, just possibly. But I think it always gets you know tied up in these uh, cross strait and uh, international issues for Taiwan. The funny thing is that we welcome that investment because this is a Japanese company. But let's put it this way: let's say that a, a Chinese or a Hong Kong or Macau company wants to buy a team in Taiwan. I don't think it would be possible. So this is the first time, and uh, I think we look we we'll look very carefully at the development of the Taiwan baseball following this uh, the, 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 this new team, the new change, new policies, and, and new coaching. I think that they will bring a lot of new things, and then we'll see whether maybe more more companies from across Asia might also show their interest in baseball. Uh, baseball is also very popular in South Korea, so. Well, maybe we'll have a South Korean Samsung, for example, buying a, a team in Taiwan. That would be nice. Right, and that's where we'll leave it here on this week's Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone by Dimitri Burias. It's quite a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps and we can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.